0: You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning we talked to U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. In less than a week, the U.S. Department of Agriculture will roll out a program to forgive the debt of some 16,000 minority farmers. Some 300 of those are here in Hawaii who are Pacific Island or Asian American farmers.
1: Well, the Congress and the American Rescue Plan, uh, at the request and direction of President Biden, felt that uh, it was time that we begin to address The cumulative effect of uh, discrimination that's occurred among socially disadvantaged producers in this country for literally decades and that would include uh, the 300 eligible socially disadvantaged producers that are located in hawaii uh, who are primarily asian-american and pacific islanders Uh, obviously hawaii is a key agricultural state agriculture is a key driver to the economy in hawaii and uh, there are farmers there who have for whatever reason not received the full Array of benefits and advantages that other farmers have received here in the 40, in the other 48 states uh, and uh, in the lower 48 states, I guess I should say. Um, and the result is uh, uh, we now have this program designed to provide debt relief. Uh, and the way it's going to work, uh, we just this day have filed what is called a notice of funds availability, which means that we are now authorized to begin the uh, payoff of debt and to provide each farmer an additional 20% of the debt amount so that they're in a position to pay whatever state or federal tax may result from this debt forgiveness. We've got people from USDA who are traveling the country who will be out in a number of states to do more outreach and education to make sure that people are aware that we are now entering the payment phase. Each borrower, uh, now these are people that have either borrowed money directly from the Department of Agriculture, which are called direct loans, They may have borrowed to buy a farm, that's an ownership loan. They may have borrowed to operate a farm, that's an operating loan. They may have borrowed for a storage facility, that's a storage loan. Direct borrowers will be receiving a letter from the Department of Agriculture in which we will identify the amount of the loan that is to be paid off, including interest. We're going to ask farmers to verify that that amount is correct because that's going to be used to generate the 20% payment that I talked about earlier. If the farmer believes that the loan amount is correct, they are to return a signed copy of the letter to us at USDA, and then we will start the process of eliminating their debt, reducing whatever liens we might have on their property or their equipment as a result of the debt, and then sending them a check for 20% to cover those tax liabilities and fees. This will take place over the next 120 days on a rolling basis. In the meantime, we will then begin to shift our attention to those borrowers who have loan guarantees with the USDA. This is where a borrower may have borrowed money from a bank but received a loan guarantee from the USDA as additional support for that loan. Those loans will also be paid off. Uh, They're a little bit more complicated because we have to pay prepayment fees and things of that nature. And we'll uh, begin that process in earnest also within the next 120 days.
0: Do we know how many Hawaii farmers fall into the second category?
1: I don't, but I think that the the number 300 probably covers both categories. I suspect it is predominantly direct loans. In the total universe of loans, we're talking about roughly somewhere between 15,000-16,000 loans. About 15% of those loans are guaranteed loans, 85% are direct loans. So the vast majority of the 300 producers in Hawaii, I suspect, are direct lenders.
0: Yeah, June is just around the corner. I know this is, you know, when you folks have decided to, you know, roll this out. Is somebody being sent over here to the islands?
1: We work with community building organizations, and we've also provided each of our borrowers uh, additional information before the letter that's going out in the next few weeks. So they've already been alerted to the fact that there is this program. They've been alerted to the fact that there will be information forthcoming. Now they'll get this letter. We've also had a call center that folks could call, a 1-800 number that they could call. We had a website with information and frequently asked questions that was available for them to look at. And we've also worked with a number of organizations that can get information out to farmers. One of the most important things for farmers in Hawaii and across the country to recognize is this tax liability. That's why we're giving the 20%. The IRS Treasury Department says that when debt is relieved, it's essentially as if you received income to pay off that debt. Now, if you're still farming, and now all of a sudden you have this very large amount of income that you've received in one year, your tax liability can be pretty significant. So farmers do have the ability to average out that large year income over a three year period. And in doing so can reduce the percentage or the rate of tax on on the gain. So it would reduce the amount of tax that they would owe and hopefully that would be covered by the twenty percent that farmers will be receiving.
0: Of the three hundred loans here in the islands, I mean, are there any of these cases where uh, the farmers have been struggling to pay those loans, or is it just forgiveness Is just straight out, regardless of whether you're, you know, financially shaky or not? It, it,
1: it's a combination of both, and 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 here's here's sort of the rationale behind this. I mentioned the cumulative effective discrimination over a period of years. Socially disadvantaged producers, because they didn't have the full array of benefits from the Department of Agriculture as white farmers may have had across the country, they weren't able necessarily to grow as rapidly. They weren't able to necessarily access the latest technology. Maybe they were unable to plant their crop in a timely way so their yields were less. And our system of compensation and, and reimbursement and protection is based in large part on the size and production of farms. So when we began providing COVID relief following the onset of the pandemic to farmers, we know from a number of studies that somewhere between 95 and 99% of tens of billions of dollars went to white farmers to cover their, their losses, to give them the choice and opportunity to reduce debt or to do whatever they felt necessary while at the same time, socially disadvantaged farmers obviously received 1% to 5% of those resources. So there was a significant gap, if you will, between what white farmers had and the opportunities that they were presented with and the choices and what smaller socially disadvantaged producers had. And this is a way of acknowledging that gap and trying to begin the process of closing it.
0: So one might say then these are reparations, but then there are some who might think this is reverse discrimination.
1: Well, it it really isn't. I mean, it's designed to reflect the fact that over a period of time, folks have been discriminated against to the point that they were not able to take full advantage of the programs that have been available to white farmers 100% of the time. White farmers took advantage of those programs, obviously, as they should, and that gave them an advantage, if you will, in terms of being able to expand their operation, to be able to buy additional equipment, and so forth. And in COVID relief, that was underscored by the significant disparity. I'll give you an example. Of the people that participated in COVID relief, about 25% of those farmers had, during the course of their dealings with USDA, self-identified from a race and ethnicity uh, standpoint. So we know of that group, that 25% of total folks who received support, that white farmers received within that group 55 million dollars in help. Black farmers, for example, received $20 million, and relatively confident that Native Americans, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders received significantly less than that amount. So you can see the disparity between socially disadvantaged farmers that received tens of millions of dollars versus white farmers who received
0: billions of dollars. So this was uh, a so type of, of institutional, I guess, racism or discrimination
1: it is the reason why the American Rescue Plan also contains the development of an equity commission to look at systems that currently exist that work to the disadvantage of socially disadvantaged producers to determine what steps could be taken to remove those barriers and to improve the equity and the fairness of what we do at USDA. In addition, there's also money under a different section of the bill that creates an opportunity for us to expand technical assistance to socially disadvantaged producers, as well as market development assistance and also land access assistance. And so over the course of the next few months, we'll be looking at how best to invest those resources, which is roughly a billion dollars from the American Rescue Plan to begin the process of educating ourselves how better to provide technical assistance, how better to promote market access for small and mid-sized operators, socially disadvantaged operators, and how best to figure out ways creatively to make a land that is available uh, readily available to socially disadvantaged producers.
0: Of the three hundred farmers here in Hawaii, do we know how many are Native Hawaiians?
1: Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh,
2: okay. I right. don't know.
0: Okay. Okay. Anything else you want to underscore?
1: No. I just. I think it's just important for people to know that this is the first step, the beginning of the beginning, as I like to say, of, of an effort to really take a look at what we've done. Uh, and to begin the process of of closing that gap and providing for a fairer and more equitable USDA. We've kind of come full circle. I think there's a greater need for greater diversification within agriculture, both in terms of producers, in terms of methods of production, in terms of size of operations, and in terms of of products that are, in fact, being grown and raised in the country. I think we found that uh, greater diversification is going to lead to healthier soil and cleaner water and more sustainable farming operations. And, I think climate has given us an opportunity to figure out ways potentially to provide resources to incent and encourage those kinds of additional activities. So I think it could be a very exciting dime.
0: That was U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack talking with us this morning from Washington, D.C. For links to more information, head to our website later today. Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawai'i Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. <laughs> In the backyard today, we take you back to the late 1950s to a time when high schoolers in the territory of Hawaii were swing dancing to big band music and slow dancing to crooner ballads. A mainstay on the radio was 1380 Top of the Dial K-H-O-N Honolulu, the station to catch chart-topping artists like Elvis, Chuck Berry, and the Coasters. You may remember saving your allowance to buy the latest national hit from the House of Music in Waikiki, but not all good music had to be shipped in. Today, we're thinking about a group of talented youth in the territory who recorded their own brand of rock and roll. Five talented teens from McKinley High School got together and put Hawaii's brand of doo on the map for today's quiz can you name the band bonus points if you know the label that press the vinyl call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right
3: just let me hear some of that rock and roll music Any old Rock roll music. If you wanna rock with me. If you wanna rock with me. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nayread Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, NayreetHawaii.com. <laughs>
0: The Supreme Court has remanded the case involving a Big Island bioenergy plant back to the Public Utilities Commission. We talked to Warren Lee, the head of Honua Ola, formerly known as Hu about what this could mean for the green energy project, which has been delayed for two years because of legal challenges. The company planned to burn eucalyptus trees or Albizia trees and other invasive species to provide electricity for the community. It's been mired in the courts because of an issue with greenhouse gases and legal technicalities. Here's Warren.
4: The uh, state Supreme Court's ruling was a major milestone for us. And, yeah, we hope that the PUC will look at the issues that were outlined by the remand and move forward with us so that we can provide firm, renewable energy to the Big
0: Island. Uh, how many workers do you have right now as this case works its way through the courts?
4: Well, we have uh, approximately 30, 34, 35 positions within Honua Ola, it's growth, the hauling, and uh, the ancillary services. So you know, it comes out to a couple hundred at least.
0: So have things just been at a standstill?
4: Pretty much. We've been slowly doing construction. We're 99% complete, pretty much doing very minimal construction activities right now.
0: And what do you believe that this Supreme Court decision does for your case?
4: I think it makes it very clear what the Supreme Court remanded a couple of years ago that the issue of greenhouse gas reduction be addressed fully and to let uh, participants like Life of the Land participate fully. So I think it reaffirmed their order from two years ago. So we're back to where we were and we hope that we can get it done with the Public Utilities Commission and all the parties expeditiously. So that we can move forward get the plant online
0: and have you had a chance to check in with the PUC any idea you know what the schedule is going to be like for the summer or how soon you can get in before them
4: yeah well we haven't uh, you know, the order came out this morning so um, you know the ball is in with the Public Utilities Commission now to set the uh, procedural schedule you know, they originally set a procedural schedule two years ago where we went through the opening statements, updated the project, did the greenhouse gas studies that were submitted by ourselves, and one was submitted by Hawaii Electric for Helco. So we hope they'll pick it up from there, and let's move forward and satisfy the remand uh, issues that the uh, Supreme Court laid out for the Public Utilities Commission and the parties.
0: So you think then uh, this will give everybody a chance to to weigh the arguments?
4: Well, I think it will give everybody a chance to understand why we're saying that we're going to be carbon negative or carbon neutral. Well, when our goal is to be carbon negative at the end of the 30-year purchase agreement, which is on the table. So everyone will have, uh, and uh, part of the we're hearing is to present that, which, w- which is the Study that we filed, and uh, you know, to answer any questions that may come up.
0: I- explain how th- this legal issue, this legal cloud, has affected the project. There,
4: you know, back in 2017, when the um, amended purchase power agreement was approved by the Public Utilities Commission, Hawaiian Electric did present a greenhouse gas reduction plan. And based on the uh, appeal, you know, we've lost or been delayed actually about two years from the plant operating. So. There is a cost. It's a huge investment that's been made by the ownership, and we just want to make sure that we can get this plant running and be providing biomass, renewable, green energy for the uh, NFOA. Delays hasn't helped. Yeah.
0: What about the workers? Well, we've kept the workers on
4: going through the legal processes. You know, some have left for other job opportunities, but core group. Uh, approximately 30 uh, remain you know, on the payroll, they're uh, trained and ready to go, ready to operate. We need to finish up the construction, which is 99% done. Then we need to commission the plan. Once we get, and that'll be done once we get through the uh, purchase power agreement process, public utilities commission.
0: If all goes well, what's your hope? It depends
4: on how, on when the, uh, back to your original question of when the PUC is going to schedule this. So, since we've been waiting so long and uh, with the uh, current, with the Supreme Court ruling that if we can get the purchase power agreement and go through all the processes within the next several months, I think there's a good chance that we could be online by maybe the end of this year or early next year.
0: How much construction needs to be uh, completed?
4: Well, for more specifically, what we need to do is we need to finish up a couple of our, what we call our cooling water wells. One of them is almost ready for testing, and then we need to submit the applications for the permits to operate to the Department of Land and Natural Resources and also other permits with the Department of Health and, you know, just do the, the remaining work and then commission the plant. You know, commissioning a steam-generating power plant is not an everyday, easy task. It could take a while.
0: That was part of a conversation we had with Warren Lee um, yesterday afternoon following the uh, issuance of the ruling by the Hoyt Supreme Court. Lee again hopes that uh, the second opportunity for the PUC could clear the way for the plant to complete its construction and get the necessary permits to begin operating. Lee hopes that can happen by the end of this year or early next year. The PUC says it is not clear at this point how soon it can reschedule a new hearing.
5: Coming Saturday, May 29th, it's a live stream Atherton Studio performance with slack key guitarist Jeff Peterson. The Grammy and Nahoku Hanohano Award winner will perform songs from his recent release Mele Nahe Nahe, plus music from his travels. This members only show is online, so join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org.
0: Civil Beat's featured story has to do with a process to protect Oahu's best agricultural lands. Reporter Stuart Yerton joins us live. Good morning, Stuart.
5: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So tell us, now we've got some hearings that are about to kick off here. What's this about?
5: Right, so we have some hearings uh, that are going to kick off with the uh, Hawaii Land Use Commission, and it's going to take up a a proposal or recommendation from the Honolulu uh, Department of Planning and Permitting that would designate uh, about 12 percent of Oahu's land, something like 41,000 acres, as important agricultural land. These are relatively small parcels owned by, uh, spread out among eight, about 1,800 landowners. So this is affecting a lot of people and a lot of land.
0: And so how, how long are these hearings scheduled for?
5: There there are probably gonna be uh, much of the day on Wednesday and Thursday. Um, What's interesting is it's it's gonna start out uh, going into executive session. And uh, reading the tea leaves, it it seems like uh, the Land Use Commission, uh, given a lot of opposition from people, that the Land Use Commission is going to try to figure out a way through this um, without uh, necessarily stopping it, or letting it go through exactly as the city wants it to go through.
0: Yeah, normally when there are hearings, they hold the exec session at the end of the the, the calendar uh, or the agenda. So it sounds like they've got some things to iron out, iron out uh, just to make sure what they don't want to run, run afoul of, uh, I guess, the legal issues. Exactly. And so it, it, did the city do something wrong? I mean, you know, we've been talking about this process for a, a long time. And, uh, you know, I, I think right. they did reach out to a lot of these homeowners, right, or these property owners.
5: Right. Okay, so so this has been going on. The city's uh, outreach has been going on since around 2013 was the last of a series of community uh, meetings on this. So the city's been reaching out to people for years. Uh, this, this whole thing is rooted in the 1978 Constitution. The legislature passed something in 2005 and 2008, uh, implementing uh, the constitutional provision. And here we are now. So your question is, did the city do something wrong? That's the crux of the issue. Um, It's really about process, not about policy. And the question is, did they do something wrong in the process? Uh, Maybe. Uh, For example, this is one example that the Land Use Commission chair um, is quoted in the story as saying, um, it could be an issue that during the community meetings, uh, the City Department of Planning and Permitting consultants told people the wrong thing. People would ask, "Could this? I'm living on my land, I'm, I'm living on ag land in a house, could this affect my ability to do that? The city uh, consultants said categorically no, but that's not exactly right. Uh, it, there is a provision in the law that would change it. The question is how much. And does it change it enough, um, and was this a, enough of an error that the Land Use Commission should say, well, wait a minute, the city didn't follow uh, the statute which lays out and requires these community meetings. So they had the community meeting, but they told somebody something wrong at the community meeting. Is that okay?
0: And you reached out to a number of people, you know, not just including those people, um, those families that have been on that property, but also to a religious organization out in Mililani.
5: Right. So there's a religious organization in Mililani. They grow uh, food on the land. They do not want the designation. They say, look, this has nothing to do with us. Uh, One of the provisions of uh, requirements of the Important Agricultural Lands uh, law is that you have to be actively farming What actively farming means, we don't really know. It's not clear. Nobody knows that. But they don't want to be caught in a bind where someone tells them, wait a minute, you need to be actively farming. And they say, well, we grow stuff, but we're, I guess, not actively farming.
0: Yeah, it is interesting because, I mean, the whole purpose of this was to protect prime ag lands. And yet are people saying, well, if I decide to, what, develop down the road that you're taking my land?
5: Well, I think this is a little bit more an issue for people of saying, wait a minute, this is not prime ag land. I can barely grow anything on this. This, this should not be designated prime. Um, it's, it's barely ag land. I mean, mm-hmm. it's technically ag land, but you can't, I can't grow anything or much of anything, much less the, the uh, really um, productive kind of agriculture That will boost the economy and boost self-sufficiency that the statute and the constitutional provision um, both envision, this land being. It just – people are saying, wait a minute, this does not fit that.
0: Right, not so fast. Well, I understand that you're also uh, poking around uh, 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 on the issue of whether it affects uh, some of the solar plans, um, and you've got an article coming out tomorrow, right?
5: Right, so we're talking to more landowners. This is all kinds of people. Everybody from uh, small farmers to, as you said, solar farms. The solar, uh, the renewable energy industry is really concerned that this is going to limit their ability to use land for uh, these renewable energy projects. So this is quite a mess, and the uh, land use commission is really going to have to find a way through it. And, And like I said, the the executive session at the beginning. Uh, seems to suggest they are going to try to find some way through this.
0: Okay, well, we'll look forward to follow-up. Thanks so much, Stuart.
5: Thank you, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Legacy of Life Hawaii with more than 30 years of saving and restoring lives in Hawaii through organ and tissue donation. Organ donor registration is available at the DMV or at LegacyofLifeHawaii.org.
0: The steady stream of travelers into the island seemed to indicate that the rebound of our visitor industry may happen sooner than expected. We reached out to Chris Cam, the head of Omnitrack, which surveys travelers and tries to get information about what the travelers perceive as barriers to getting back into the swing of things.
6: Our research really focuses on the domestic market, and so we get into the hearts, the minds, and the travel intentions of domestic travelers, talking with about 9,500 of these people online each month. As part of our Travel Track America syndicated research program. And one of the measurements we do take in that program is travel sentiment, basically, how people feel about travel in regards to their interest in travel, whether or not personal finances are conducive to travel at the time, what do they feel about affordability of travel, and in safety of travel is also one of those categories which we measure. Interesting thing is, I think. Safety for the past year, over the past year, has been an issue that uh, really has been a barrier to travel, but it has receded and uh, to the point where it's not completely gone or definitely not back to pre-COVID levels, but now the bigger concern seems to be the affordability of travel more so than the safety of travel.
0: And this is just then for the first quarter, the responses from the folks that you surveyed? Yeah, that would be like from the first quarter. Well, I did see in the paper this weekend all the ads for cruising, you know, and offering incentives. They're offering free land excursions and other perks just to entice travelers to start booking cruises again.
6: There is a lot of, lot of pent-up travel demand in the market is what we're seeing in our national research. People want to reconnect with friends and relatives, either by visiting them, going on a trip and visiting friends and relatives, or traveling with friends and relatives as a way to connect. They want to escape. They want to pick up their travel plans, which got suspended during COVID. Some people go the other direction, and they they don't want to return to their prior travel plans, but now they want to go and engage in all of their wish list bucket list, I guess, uh, travel plans. Some of the people we're hearing from say they want to visit all 50 states, and they're running out of time. They realize that this made them appreciate life more and the freedom to travel more. And as soon as things calm down and are perceived as safe enough, they want to get out the door and get to work on that bucket list.
0: I've talked to a number of people in the industry, and they seem to feel that this recovery, as far as travel anyway, is coming back faster than folks might have expected. This is unprecedented.
6: A lot of the expectations that we hit when the unprecedented occurred really put people in the industry in a uh, rather dismal mood, if you will. And I think we all took a kind of a conservative approach to how long we thought the recovery would take. A lot of us thought two to three, possibly up to five years. But people have been at home for the past year, and they have been thinking about travel. They've had travel on their minds. They've been allured by by destinations that have maintained a marketing presence. And now with the, uh, well, they also spent the last year thinking about all the great travel experiences they want to have and all the great places they want to go. Now with vaccinations in place, they kind of have are regaining that freedom and uh, that the travel confidence, that uh, sense of safety to go out back on the road, back on planes, and engage in all of the things they've been dreaming about for the past year. They want beaches. They want to escape. They want to reconnect with friends and relatives. And the vaccination rates are are looking good, so they feel safer about travel.
0: The big question, of course, is international travel. We were looking for return of the Japanese travelers, the travelers from Asia. But now with this news out of the CDC that, you know, don't travel to Japan, and I know some folks worry that that's going to mean a longer recovery for that segment of the market
6: yes we would suggest that the return of the international markets is going to be set back a bit further than originally expected and i guess the good news is we assuming that the the recovery in the international markets mirrors the uh, return of the domestic market the travel demand should surge back from the international markets similar to what we're seeing in the us market i guess when it comes to travel and tourism consumers really see it as Baked into their DNA, they have a need to get away, a need to experience other parts of the world. And if that need isn't met for a, a year, then they really begin to realize how much they miss it and are anxious to get back on the road and and back to their, to part of their life, I guess, that uh, they find enriching and they can't do without.
0: What do you make of this curious wrinkle with the rental car situation? Some hoteliers are concerned and they're urging their uh, clients to book cars as soon as possible and not wait to the last minute because they fear as it gets closer to their arrival date, their uh, guests will start canceling their hotel reservations because they can't get a car or it's just ridiculously expensive. It's definitely making
6: planning a Hawaii vacation far more complex. And in fact, this kind of echoed. Some things that we we we're asking more on a qualitative basis, we ask people when travel is safe again, you know, what are the first things that you want to do? And uh, interestingly enough, Hawaii was mentioned a lot. People are seeking a beach. They want a beach that's not crowded. They want to drink a Mai Tai. They're saying that they want to either come to Hawaii or Mexico, Hawaii or the Caribbean. Basically, they're looking for relaxation. But at the same time that they're mentioning this this uh, strong interest in coming to Hawaii, uh, some other of the comments that we saw said they would like to come to Hawaii, but there's just too many variables involved right now. And that relates to the, you'd have to arrange your rental car, you'd have to get to your hotel room, your air seat all aligned. Then you got to figure out what's open, what's not open. And then there's the quarantine requirements that they have to uh, the pre-testing uh, requirements that they would have to navigate as well. They just decide to opt for a vacation experience that is really a vacation and less of a a planning.
0: So they they're interested in a hassle-free paradise. Uh, they're, they've had enough of this pandemic.
6: Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, we saw one comment where they said they picked Hawaii, or because they saw Hawaii as a relaxing vacation, as opposed to going on a sightseeing vacation, which I guess is perceived as being requiring more planning and more hustling between point A and point B just to get all the sights sounds. They just wanted to avoid the hassle that was, avoided, that was associated with such a sightseeing vacation.
0: Any uh, new questions that you're throwing in there just as we move into the second quarter and the busy summer season? Uh, we're just trying to get a handle
6: on a better idea on what exactly... Uh, are the barriers to travel and uh, what are the uh, messages that people want to hear in order to convince them that places are are safe to travel because that's what we're seeing. People want to travel at the same time that they, they're very interested in travel. They want to travel responsibly. They expect to continue with masking. They expect a social distance when they get to a destination. And, and they want to go to a destination that's overall safe, perceived as overall as a safe destination. So we're trying to get a, a deeper feel into what exactly all of that, that mindset entails.
0: That was Chris Kam president of Omnitrack, a company that regularly surveys domestic travelers about their attitudes and plans for travel. in the show we took you back to the hop recalling the teen music scene of the late 1950s in the territory of Hawaii. Popular artists like the Coasters, Chuck Berry and Elvis were heavy ro- on heavy rotation on the radio. It was during this time that five teens from McKinley High School got together and formed one of the territory's early rock and roll garage bands. Band members included Danny Bobbitt, uh, Ma Kalbasi, uh Johnny Akana, Walter Choi and Rudy Molina. Here is their 1959 hit called "Dakine." Somewhere in the middle of the big Pacific,
5: there is a little island famous for smooth and beautiful music, and known simply as
2: the.
0: Oh, what fun. Some old-timers may recall the Royal Drifters opening for Elvis at the Old Termite Palace. If you've got a stash of vintage 45s and want to look for their music, it's helpful to know that it was released by Teen Records of Honolulu. Uh, No winners today. We stumped you on that one. Uh, If you have an idea for a quiz, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
3: Support for H.P.R. comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring outdoor pop-up installations across the museum. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org.
7: A year since the murder of George Floyd, A year of protests and people demanding change. But was it enough?
3: We're still here. We're still holding it
5: down. No justice, no street.
7: I'm Kimberly Atkins. That's on the next On
5: Point.
6: Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world.
0: Mental Health Awareness Month comes to a close next week, Monday. But the work to elevate the importance of mental health, especially with our keiki, will continue. One effort that's just getting started is the rollout of the Integrated Infant and Early Childhood Behavioral Health Plan. It's a collaboration between several local government and non-government agencies to centralize the information for services available to help parents address their child's mental, social, and emotional health. The conversations, with Russell Subiono, set out to learn more.
8: Imagine you're a parent with a child dealing with mental, social, or emotional challenges. You want to help your child, but the idea of knocking on a hundred doors or making a hundred calls or reading through a hundred websites to find it only adds to your frustration. The good news is this is what the Integrated Infant and Early Childhood Behavioral Health Plan is hoping to alleviate. I called up Kerry Urosovich of Hawaii's Early Childhood Action Strategy to get her insight on the new plan.
7: So this is the first time that we've had a government non-government plan, which is really exciting. And the intention is to make sure that everyone that provides support for families with young children, that when behavioral health needs come up, if they can't address it themselves, that they know who to reach out to, to get that family the needed support. So most of the time families go to their pediatrician if there's a concern. Right. But if the pediatrician can't meet those needs, oftentimes they don't know who to refer to. And so that makes it really challenging because then the support stops you know, immediately. And so we wanna make sure that everyone, whether you're a pediatrician, you're an early care and learning um, professional, you're a family support service program, you're a government program, that when you're seeing a family and you're recognizing that a child and family needs support around behavioral health, that you know who to refer to and get that handoff that clean handoff so there isn't a gap in services and support.
8: But how does this plan apply practically in real life? I sat down with Sheila, a parent experienced with some of the issues the plan is aiming to help with.
2: At about two years old, we could start to sense that my son needed some support with his speech development and his preschool teacher agreed with us. Um, He was in virtual speech therapy until he turned three years old and then aged out of early inter- intervention on his birthday. And then that's when our journey really began to navigate the providers that were out there from the costs to the locations to the services that are being offered. And that we started with a with a great program. We've been going to them for about three months. But after three months, our insur- we finally heard back from our insurance company that they're denying speech therapy services because it's a developmental delay. So now we are back to the drawing board. Do we stay at this speech therapy for consistency and really pay out of pocket? And it's quite expensive. Or do we do what we're doing now, which is calling around and again, starting from the drawing board to see what providers are out there, what the rates are, what services they offer and how long wait lists are, because for many of them, there is, there is a long wait list to get services and all of this really takes Time to find providers, to fill out paperwork, to get appointments, to speak to the insurance company, to file appeals.
8: Right now, a lot of the behavioral health resources and services are kind of fragmented amongst a lot of different areas, whether it be government or, or nonprofit. It sounds like this new process that you're going through to see what else is available to you. It just sounds like just a ton of work and maybe even a, a lot of work that many parents shouldn't have to go through. And maybe some, some might even just throw up their arms and just say, you know, forget about it. But it sounds like this new plan is something that helps centralize and helps formalize the, this, this process. Yeah. Okay.
2: Ideally, our system would have a child and parent-centered approach. For example, there was a website or a phone number that we could call and understand what services are out there, roughly how much visits might cost what insurance will and won't cover, and how long we would need to wait to get services. It really, the burden really is on the parents to sort of figure this all out for themselves and to take that time to call around, take notes, and then to figure out what's right for your child.
8: Today, parents looking for services to help their child have access to an abundance of information, but sometimes that's a double-edged sword. Sheila puts it this way.
2: As a parent, you just want what's best for your child but when you're navigating the system and you're experiencing roadblocks and delays, you feel the weight of that, like time is ticking to get your child the support they need as soon as possible.
8: For parents, much of the frustration comes from not knowing where to go to get answers. I asked you, Rosevich, if this plan helps find those answers in a much easier or much more streamlined way for parents.
7: That's the ultimate goal. That's exactly what, that was the original intent of this plan. So the plan addresses multiple components, but the intention is really to make sure that from a user-driven perspective, right, from the family perspective, that they know exactly where to get the help. And that will happen in a few ways. One is we have an outreach and education component to the community so that families know that when these needs arise, they know, they know exactly who to reach out to. The second component is a workforce development component. So how are we making sure that we're not only increasing the number of behavioral health consultants for our families and for the professionals that work with our young children, but that we're also building the skill sets of those that are already working with our youngest to have the skill sets to help the child and their family with the particular issue that the child is having. And so it's not, it isn't just about building the workforce, but it's also building capacity for those already in the workforce. Um, And that should really help families. Um, It's almost like a no wrong door approach, right? Mm -hmm. That anyone that's um, engaging with that family will know how to get them the help that they need.
8: I used to work for the government. I remember I'd get a lot of phone calls with people who had questions who had been passed off from office to office to office. But all the other calls, they didn't know where to send the person for the answers. This sounds like this plan, even if you end up kind of in the middle of the process, you'll still be able to get the help you need and maybe even direction as to what the next step is or or what the steps were that you missed.
7: That's correct. And I think for our organization, the Early Childhood Action Strategy Organization, it was formed for that very reason. We knew that the system was fragmented. Um, whether you're focusing on behavioral health or early care and learning, or even child abuse and neglect prevention, that it's fragmented. So families, were getting stuck uh, in the system. And so this government, non-government partnerships that we've been working on for the last 10 years are focused exactly on that, that there is no wrong door for our families, but also that there's no wrong door for our workforce, that they feel confident in in getting the families the supports that they need is, is really critical.
8: Better coordinating services spread out over several agencies isn't an easy task, which prompted me to ask you, about the creation of the plan. How did it come about, and who's involved?
7: So we have a a leadership team. The Early Childhood Action Strategy has a leadership team, and it's a government, non-government team. And we had a lot of different projects that were focused on social-emotional development, trauma-informed care, um, you know, different components, but they weren't connected. And we recognized that we didn't have a state plan. We didn't have a concerted strategy that connected those dots. And so we decided to form an advisory. And so the advisory came together. It includes Hawaii Community Foundation, Association of Infant Mental Health, the Executive Office of Early Learning, Head Start Collaboration Office, and our Department of Health. So really key partners, along with our action strategy partners, to look at what, what could this plan look like? What's doable? What are some short-term objectives, medium-term and long-term? Um, and what's what's it going to take? And we also really appreciated that there's only so much you can do outside of state government that if we're really looking at systems change, we need the buy-in from our, our state partners. And so Department of Health really stepped up in saying we will champion this and we will house this plan, which was a game changer. And so when we, when we identified that we had that strong partnership, we moved forward and spent a year with the advisory, looking at the different components. And then we went out and did various focus groups and intentional conversations with key stakeholders in the system to find out what already exists, where are the gaps, what are we learning from other states that are a little bit ahead of of us in developing these types of strategies. And that's how we put the plan together. So it was really nice. It was also informed by family members to find out their experience.
8: The government and nonprofits have made big strides in the past few decades to better understand child health and development. Why hasn't something like this been done before?
7: I would say it's because social and emotional development, I think traditionally has has been viewed as soft skills that our young children and even our older children need to know. I think people are appreciating that they're actually foundational skills there's this organization, national organization called the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning, or CASEL, and they say that social and emotional factors are the most powerful influence over students' achievement in school. They could have all the academic access, academic support, but if they are coming to school with stressors, Mm -hmm. right, that they, they just can't overcome, their ability to learn is very much limited, and so I think Over the last decade, social and emotional learning has really been elevated to be at par with academic achievement and recognizing that that they have to work together for our our students and our young children um, to do really well. And so once that got set for the K through 12 students, people started to recognize, gosh, social and emotional development is really about brain architecture. And it starts really young. It starts in infancy. So we need to be starting earlier with our little ones and recognizing that our little ones, right, are shaped by their, initially by their home environment, and then in the environments that they go into in early care and learning programs. And so how do we build that capacity for the families, right, to support their their little ones' brain development around these skills? So it really started, it kind of worked backwards. I think early childhood is always um, a second thought, um, but it, it's been really wonderful to have you know, local, national, and federal policymakers um, and leaders talking about how critically important this is.
8: Implementation of the Integrated Infant and Early Childhood Behavioral Health Plan is already in motion. While it works toward its short-term objectives, the agencies involved continue to develop and adjust its long-term goals. As my call with Eurosevich wound down, I asked her if she had any final thoughts to share.
7: I think the other intention with this plan is also to normalize how incredibly challenging parenting can be uh, and to teach and to help families be patient with themselves first, right? And then to be patient with their little ones as they learn together how to help raise each other through the process. And so it's normalizing challenging behaviors, which sometimes can be stigmatized, but it's just so normal, right? And it's part of development. And so I think there's also a big effort to make sure that, families feel confident in sharing their stories and talking about what's hard and recognizing that that's a similar story for families across the islands.
0: That was Carrie Rosevich talking with HPR's Russell SubiONO. For more information about the plan or resources available for parents, go to the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That is it for today. Tomorrow, uh, we plan to talk about the constitutional crisis in Samoa following the election of the country's first uh, female prime minister. You can catch up on our past interviews or shows by listening to The Conversation podcast on the HPR mobile app or by going to the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.